Welcome to this week's episode of After the Book Ends with Heather Down, because life isn't finished after the book is published. I couldn't trust no one I couldn't trust myself So how could I trust anyone else? Welcome to After the Book Ends with Heather Down, the podcast that begins with the last paragraph of the book. It is the place where we learn what happens to nonfiction authors after the ink dries. Glad you could stop by today for the kickoff of our fall season. I've been on a bit of a summer hiatus. I took some time to go to Newfoundland to celebrate my mother's 90th birthday and also spent a little more time camping, a great way to recharge my batteries. But I'm thrilled to be back and even more excited about our first guest, the author of Playing With Fire, the don't quit before the miracle man, Theo Fleury. Welcome, Theo. If you have not yet read his memoir, you absolutely need to. It was published back in 2009, and it's still an amazing read. So relevant. So a quick background for our listeners. Theo, you are an NHL Stanley Cup champion, an Olympic gold medalist, a World Cup junior champion, and recipient of many awards, including the Canadian Humanitarian Award and the Aboriginal Inspire Award. But what listeners may not know is you're also a best-selling author, a guy who used to be in the concrete business, a professional baseball player, a motivational speaker, a competitor on Battle of the Blades, an expert in relational trauma. And of course, I mean, who isn't? You're a, you're a country singer. Yes. And you have an album out. I listened to it last night. We'll explore some of that stuff a little bit later. But um, you're the guy who really knows how to reinvent yourself in in a lot of ways. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, grass grows really well around because <laughs> I'm always on the move. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I get bored easily. I think you've yeah. had to, though, right? I mean, anyone mm-hmm. who's been in professional sports – all For of a sure. sudden, you're not. So, what yeah. do you do? Mm-hmm. You, you really. But I don't think more. To... I think more importantly was, I can remember probably from the first time I started playing hockey and was really good at it. That you know the world started to tell me that I was too small, that I was mm. never going to make it. Right, yeah. and you know, I never listened to the noise. You know, I call it the noise. Because it was a re- reflection of where they were at in their life and not where I was at in my life. And, uh, you know, I was taught early on in life that uh, through hard work and dedication that, you know, there wasn't anything that I couldn't achieve in life. And so uh, post-hockey career, all the things that uh, I've done is, you know, I've surrounded myself with really good people. And... Uh, you know, I've had those people help me, you know, become an author, become a musician, uh, become a motivational speaker, whatever it is. And, and, uh, and so, you know, when I meet people who, uh, through their trauma history, uh, have been told, you know, that they're not good enough, they're not lovable, uh, they've been abandoned, they've been neglected, that, uh, you know, there's just a simple formula to all of this to reverse those core beliefs that we, you know, have learned in our childhood is that, you know, find people 
that uh, listen and, you know, and then instill, you know, hard work, you know, you're a survivor. And, mm. and if, and if you're a survivor, there isn't anything that people can throw at you that you're not going to figure out a way out of it. And, and so, you know, um, you know, I even know, you know, when I came out with the album, how many people were, you know, uh, jealous, you know, that how can this guy have this much talent in, in, you know, in his, in his, you know, core and his brain and all this stuff. And, and, uh, you know, I wasn't trying to be, you know, the next, uh, you know, George Strait or whatever. I, I was doing it because, it was something that I loved to do, and it was extremely, extremely cathartic. Uh, and part of, you know, the healing process was, um, you know, finding different ways to, uh, you know, talk about uh, pain and suffering in the world. And, and so, you know, the book was great. The motivational speaking was great. The music's been great. So... You know, we've tried to exhaust every kind of platform to get the message out there. Amazing, amazing. I'm going to ask you to read the last paragraph of Playing With Fire. <laughs> but before I do, I, I want to comment on your book. I always read all the books of the authors mm -hmm. that I interview and um, and share what I found. And what struck me the most is like a hockey player, you're a straight shooter in this book. You, you just say it. And it is, it's very refreshing. And probably hearkening back to what you just said, you know, you're a survivor, you've lived through probably the worst. So I think you get a confidence from that just to be to believe in yourself and, and say it. Um, at the end of your book, you, you write a chapter basically called Why I Wrote This Book. And to be honest, it's my favorite chapter. Uh, you kick it off by saying, I wrote this book because I had nothing going on. I was flat broke and my, my, my wife was worried about what our future would look like. <laughs> and I love that because it's honest. I bet 90% of people who write books feel that way, but you actually said it. And uh, <laughs> I've been in the book business since 2000, so I found that really refreshing. I actually laughed out loud. I loved, I loved <laughs> that. Um, it was amazing. So the book comes out, and uh, I think the next year you're basically you're on Battle of the Blades. Who, who was yeah. your partner, and how did that go? <laughs> well, um, yeah, it wasn't it, I, I went on a cross Canada book tour. Okay. And I want to ask you a bit about that too. Mm -hmm. Do you want me to ask you that first, maybe? No. Nope. Okay. No. Nope. Um, so I went on a cross Canada book tour. And what come out of that is anybody who writes a book, all automatically people start to call and say, Hey, do you speak publicly about mm -hmm. yep. this? So I happened to be in Toronto at this big, I don't know, Easter Seals event. And Jamie Soleil was there at this cool. thing. And so, she had done Battle of the Blades the year before, and she came up to me and she says, well, why don't you do Battle of the Blades this year? And I said, I will only do Battle of the Blades if you're my partner. <laughs> Good so, move. So, um, so I agreed to do that. And uh, what was really funny was, um, you know, they said, you got to wear the figure skates. Oh. Like, okay. So 
I was like one of the first guys to sign up for the show that year. So I, I went and bought a pair of figure skates. I had a friend who uh, had was teaching me Pilates and her husband was a figure skating coach. And so for a month, I went and trained with 10 and 12 year old little girls okay. every day. <laughs> and uh, needless to say, uh, I wiped out a lot. <laughs> And uh, these little girls were absolutely hysterical, laughing. Oh, that at sounds fun. I, I was uh, wiping out, but uh, um, but I can tell you, it was probably one of the top five most challenging, most rewarding, most amazing uh, experiences that I've ever had in my life. It would be kind of like starting over because it is a different way of skating. Totally different. No, you got picks on those things right mm -hmm. they, they seem to get a, in the way if you're used to hockey skates well so it must have been challenging hockey skates are built like this right on an angle we're forward yeah whereas figure skates are flat right and they have these little picks on the bottom of them right yes. so when you get into hockey skating stride you know yep we had to re reteach ourselves how to skate on these on these things, and I didn't realize that the picks were for lifting. Right, right. They were right. important in you know lifting and and uh, you know doing the the spins and and all this stuff. And so, um, me already being a good skater, it wasn't too hard of a transition. But I can tell you. Um, you know, I'm 51 years old and I am a way better skater. I'm more uh, efficient because I, I know how to use all the edges in my skates from, right. you know, from that experience, which was kind of cool. Excellent. So the book comes out, you went on tour, as mentioned, and although, you know, you say you're not making yourself the poster child for sexual abuse, um, are you surprised? Do people come up to you and share their stories on your book tour? Well, I have a great story about, so, you know, when I retired from hockey, all I had was a grade 12 diploma from Vanier Collegiate in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. Right. And I had more than half my life left to live. And I had no idea what the rest of my life was going to look like. And so, uh, shortly after I moved back to Calgary, um, I was very lucky because we have a great alumni association here in Calgary, the Calgary Flames alumni. And so I started doing some stuff with them. And so every year we have a golf tournament in Calgary. And so I showed up at this golf tournament and uh, I run into this old media guy that used to cover the team when I played here. And I hadn't seen him in probably 10 years. And so I walked up to him and shook his hand and, First thing he said to me, he says, what are you doing these days? I said, I'm doing absolutely nothing. So we kind of go back and forth and make small talk. And at the end of the conversation, I say to him, I say, do you know anybody that would be interested in writing a book with me? And he says, funny you should ask. He says, my wife is a writer. And I was like, wow. That's cool serendipitous. Yeah. Yeah. So three days after that conversation, I met with Kirsty, and then three days later, we started writing "Playing the Fire." Now, when I when I sat down to write the book, the only thing I was going to talk about was my hockey career. 
I wasn't going to talk about my parents. I wasn't going to talk about my sexual abuse. I wasn't going to talk about my drink-a-log and my drug-a-log. I was just going to talk about my hockey career. But early on in the process of writing the book, this lady, Kirsty, made me feel safe. Awesome. And I trusted her. So three years later, we finished the book, and I tell the whole entire story. So four days before I'm going to Toronto, like I am shitting in my pants. Mm. I'm so scared, so afraid because I I don't know how, you know, all of you are going to react to what's in the book. And I also knew that I was going to go do a whole bunch of media. And I knew that the only thing that the media would be interested in would be to re-victimize me at every opportunity. Right. So, because I'm a fairly smart and bright guy, I spent four days on my computer researching every single thing I could find on the subject of child sexual abuse, because I wanted to get a story of hope and healing and recovery out to the masses. So, sure enough, I show up in Toronto. I do 300 interviews in the first four or five days that I'm there. And just like I predicted, the only thing they're interested in is the gory details of uh, my sexual abuse. Right. But like a good politician, you never <laughs> have to answer the reporter's questions directly, right? Right. Which all of my media training in the 30 years that I played hockey and done many, many, many interviews prepared me for that. So in every single interview, I had five main points that I wanted to get across. So no matter what question the reporter asked me, it was my agenda, not theirs. So I got this story of hope and healing and recovery out to the masses. Then the next thing was the very first book signing. And, you know, my expectations for the book were really low. I didn't think anybody was going to read the book. And I thought I'd show up and sign 10 books and go to the next city and sign 10 books and so on. Right? You were so very I wrong. <laughs> so I show up at the biggest Indigo chapter store in all of Canada, downtown Toronto. And uh, I walk through the front doors and there's 400 people. Wow standing in line with my book. And I'm like, what the hell are all these people doing here? You know, this is very weird. You know, I didn't expect this, right? So I start signing books. Out of the corner of my eye, spot this guy in line. And he's got my book clutched against his chest and his face is buried in the floor and he's walking really slow. And I was like, hmm, I wonder what's up with this dude. So I follow him all the way in the line. He gets to the front of the line, puts a book on the table, looks me in the eye and says, me too. Mm. Me too. And, you know, every day I work in the field of trauma, mental health and addiction. And I'm in awe of people's courage. Yeah. Okay. And what I saw that day was the greatest act of courage I'd ever seen in my life. Because not only did he need to get to the book signing to say me to, but guess what? I needed to hear it. You needed to hear it. I I need. Yeah. That's an amazing story. You know, that guy showed up and delivered a spiritual message of two simple words. And right then and there, I knew what the rest of my life was going to look like. Amazing. Because Because up until that point, I had... 
I had no idea what the hell I was going to do with the rest of my life. And then what happened after that was I got completely run over by people. Mm. Every point. Yes. 5, 10, 15, 20 people at every book signing were coming up to the table saying, hey, I read your book. You told my story. Me too. Hey, I saw your documentary. You told my story. Me too. Hey, I read article in a magazine. You told my story. Me too. And so, you know, it's now <clears throat> 2019 and I have not stopped for 10 years. I and I met that. Yeah. hundreds of thousands of survivors who um, have used, you know, this book as inspiration to find their own voice and tell their own story. And that's amazing. And I, I, I believe it's true that just, I mean, of course, we don't want to glorify it or, or um, you know, put too much emphasis on it, the gory details like the media tried to do to you. I yeah. don't think that's right. But the idea that you're a survivor and a victor, I think is very courageous. And just by saying it or putting it in your book, and you didn't overdo it, in my opinion, you know, you stated it, and it was there and on to the next thing. But mm -hmm. you do give others courage to do the same to shed that stigma. Um, you know, I've spoken with Michael Landsberg and heard him speak many times. And just the idea that he said something off the cuff out loud in his show, and the response he got, and it changed not only the lives of people that he has no idea who, yeah. but his own life, because he, he, like you, I believe, found his, his purpose. And it's funny that you kind of talk about this, because I actually just finished an advanced reading copy of a book called A Medic's Mind by Matthew Hennigan. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And, um, if you don't mind, I'd like to read you a paragraph because it's actually sure. about you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so near the end of his book, kind of like you, he finds his voice on this particular topic. It's not the central core of his book. He's a, he, he was a medic in the Canadian yeah. military. He has a podcast. Um, but this particular chapter, he writes a paragraph where he, he kind of lets it go to his therapist and he writes an email to a friend of his kind of just for the first time in his life, kind of saying it out loud or writing it out loud, I guess. Um, and it begins like this. I am writing this because it has been bubbling beneath the surface for a few days now. The ignition of further thought came from seeing Theo's like on my Twitter post. I envy his courage and dedication to recovery. It takes a kind of bravery I don't think I have. Theo speaks so openly, and I'm afraid to write this. I'm also afraid to go to sleep. I have been dreaming of an ominous figure as of late. And he goes on to kind of relieve himself. And it's all because of a little tweet that you liked. So it doesn't it boggle your mind that something so simple that you might do inadvertently has such a big influence on so many people? There's no question. It's crazy. And what it tells us is that um, the greatest tool that we have to overcome any type of stigma is community. Yes. You know? Um, I have found the greatest healing moments doing group chats, group therapy, because when you use vulnerability, 
right? Yeah. Which is what this book is it all totally about. Totally is. Yep. Fire is here. It is no holds barred. Here it is vulnerability. And what happens when we're vulnerable? It creates safety. Yes. And then when we have safety, that's when the magic of healing happens. But I think someone feels safe when they hear someone else tell a similar yes. story. That's which what is, gives which, them permission. Which is vulnerability. It's vulnerability it. is the absolute key to all of this. It's it, powerful. It eliminates stigma in milliseconds, right? Amazing. And there is a moment in all of my speeches where it is eerily and deathly silent. Hmm. And that's when I know I have my audience. Right. And that's when I know I've done my job as a speaker is because I get everybody in the room to self-reflect right. on their own trauma histories. Right. Right. And, you know, we, we don't talk about trauma. Right. We talk about mental health. We talk about addiction, but we forget about the catalyst as right. to why we have an addiction problem or we have mental health issues. It's because we've experienced trauma. And most people think that they have to have a trauma experience as horrific as mine, but mm -hmm. it's not. Trauma is very cunning. It's very baffling. It's very um, simple. And subjective. Like what, what can be trauma to one person might be not feel like yeah. trauma to another. Yeah. And so when we experience trauma, leaves us in emotional pain and suffering. Mm -hmm. And that emotional pain and suffering is what I call mental health. And so how are we going to deal with this emotional pain that's left behind from this experience while we tend to gravitate towards the dark side of life and we get involved in addictions, mm -hmm. alcohol, drugs, food, sex, gambling, workaholism, you name it, right? Where we can avoid the pain by numbing it out with an addiction, right? Yes. And it isn't until we unpack the trauma history that the mental illness subsides and the addiction issues are no longer needed. Yes, absolutely. I think people don't realize that addiction really isn't about addiction. It's about trauma. No, it's a symptom it's trauma. of trauma. Yeah. It's a symptom yeah. of trauma. It's, it's a, a new coping mechanism. It's kind of a new way to look, not, it shouldn't be a new way to look at, but for some people, it is kind of a new way of, of framing the whole, whole concept. I hate the word, I hate the word addiction because mm -hmm. it has so much shame attached right. to it. We're already in shame. We don't need more. Don't need more of that stuff. Yeah. And yeah. what I call it is emotional pain management. That's what it is. Right. And that's what the majority of the world is doing is managing their emotional pain and suffering because we haven't created a safe space to talk about trauma. Right. And therein lies the stigma attached to mental health and addiction. So I'm going to change um, gears just a little bit because we're going to talk about all the different things that you kind of um, did after the book was published. Briefly, tell me a bit about your, I think it was a short-lived baseball career. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I had started a clothing company. Yes, I did find that online and, too. <laughs> and it was called Fake Flurries <laughs> Artistic Custom Enterprises. And so uh, there was a independent ball team, professional ball team in Calgary. And I know I knew the general manager of the team because he used to be a reporter with CTV in Winnipeg when I was playing hockey. And so I approached him and I said, Hey, are you guys interested in, you know, maybe purchasing some of our new uh, apparel that we've created? And he said, yeah, that would be great. And then he said to me, he says, didn't you used to be a really good baseball player? And I said, yeah, I was actually a better baseball player than I was a hockey player. He said, well, why don't you come and play a couple games with us? Because it's, you know, it's independent baseball. It's not like these guys are making, you know, major league salaries. And I said, yeah, I would love to. So I spent a whole week with the team. I was taking batting practice and catching fly balls and taking grounders. It was like I, I thought I had died and gone to heaven. And uh, so they had a doubleheader on I think it was either the Saturday or the Sunday and I played in both games and my first at bat, I got a, I got a hit. Nice. And, uh, and so, yeah. So I retired with a three thirty three batting average, which is most uh, professional baseball players who have that batting average are in the baseball hall of fame. So, <laughs> yes. Well, that sounds like a fun time and kind of a transitional time in your life, I think, too. Mm -hmm. And then um, you did an album that took six years. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. So tell me about that process and how you came up with writing all those songs. Because I understand you write, you wrote quite a few, but you whittled it down all. to 10. Yeah, I wrote them all. The lyrics are amazing. And by the way, my favorite, I think, um, it's one about... Um, uh, not, oh, I can't think of the title, but it's something to the fact that, you know, if you release your secret has yeah, talks about secret secret. your secrets. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. I enjoyed that one. So what yeah. was that process like? Did, did you like consult with people? <laughs> Obviously you needed some guidance. This is a whole right. new arena for you. Yeah. So I grew up around country music my whole entire life. My family is incredibly musical. Uh, my grandpa was a fiddle player, my dad's a guitar player, my uncle's a guitar player. So every Sunday we would go to my uncle's farm and it would just be this huge jam session with people singing and dancing and all kinds of really cool stuff. So, and I always sang. Uh, my dad put us three boys in many talent shows in small town, you know, uh, Manitoba. And so I always sang and, you know, when I, uh, and I had a friend in the music industry, he's very, uh, he's a singer, songwriter, producer for Sony records. Okay. And he lives in Winnipeg. So shortly after the book came out, I, I called him and I said, Phil, I said, I want to stroke something off my bucket list. I said, uh, would you be interested in writing a song with me? And he says, yeah, I would, I would love to. But he said, there's one stipulation. He said, uh, while you're in Winnipeg and us guys are going to work on this song, 
we play musicians hockey every Tuesday and Thursday. Uh. <laughs> he said, I will do this for you, but you have to come and play hockey with us the two days that you're here. And I was like, yeah, sure, let's do it. So we sat down and wrote this song called As the Story Goes, which is kind of a theme song uh, to my life. And when we sat down to write the song, he's like, what do you want this song to be about? And I said, well, do you know when you get to play the country music record backwards, you get your dog back, get your girl back, get your, you know, your house back. You get all these things back because in most country songs, you're losing this stuff, right? So we come together, we write this song. Uh, he puts it all together and then sends it to me. I listen to the song and I'm like, wow, this is actually really good. So I call him and I said, what do you think of the song? He goes, I think it's an awesome song. And I said, well, do you want to keep writing? And he's like, yeah. So I, I kept going back and forth to Winnipeg and, and we, you know, we're writing and putting songs together. And then I had a friend in Calgary here who we were drinking buddies, drugging buddies, the whole nine yards, the whole time. I didn't even know that he was a musician. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So he comes to my house one night and we sit in my basement and we write the title track to the song in 45 minutes Wow! called I am who I am. So between Phil and Patty, the three of us, you know, we wrote 30 songs and then we picked the 10 best songs and found a really awesome recording studio here in Calgary. And, uh, you know, put this album together and uh, we did a little mini tour of a uh, few towns and cities. And uh, right now we're in the studio writing the second album as we speak. Oh, nice. Nice. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's available everywhere, I think. I listened yep. to it on Spotify, so yep. uh, you can stream it. Check it out if you haven't. If you didn't know Theo Fleury was a country singer, you should check it out. Um, and then tell us a bit about the Victor Walk. What is that mm. and your involvement? Yeah. Well, you know, after the book tour, you know, I realized that I wasn't in the minority that I was in the majority. And that's something that I thought was uncommon is actually really common. But there wasn't a whole lot of people out there who were willing to talk about this. So I said, why don't we do something big around the subject? And so we put a little business plan together and <clears throat> we, uh, went out to, you know, local businesses to see if we could drum up enough money to do this Victor walk, which is, which I was going to walk from Toronto to Ottawa over 10 days. So uh -huh. 400 kilometers, 40 kilometers a day. That's basically so went, a marathon a day. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I went to the corporate community in Calgary, absolutely got no support. Because we were talking about, well, we used the word sexual, right? Um, and nobody wants anything to do with sexual. So uh, I got my band together. Uh, we charged $100 a ticket. And we put on this benefit concert to raise money 
to do this Victor walk. So I think we raised like twelve or thirteen thousand dollars. I got two Winnebagos, seven of my friends, and we went to Toronto and uh, walked from Toronto to Ottawa to raise awareness around the subject of sexual abuse. And I can tell you, each and every one of us that was on that Victor walk, our lives were changed forever because... Like, we didn't know, we didn't care if one person showed up. We were just going to walk and see what happened. And what happened was, it was unbelievable. People were literally driving, parking their cars on the side of the road, getting out of their cars, and telling us their stories. Wow. For 10 days. And then when we got to Ottawa... We, uh, um, we arrived on the front steps of parliament to like 2,500 survivors from wow. all over the country that showed up. And it was the most, uh, surreal experience of my life. It was amazing. Amazing. And then we got to go, and then we got to go into parliament and, uh, beat up a whole bunch of politicians around <laughs> justice and, you know, and they didn't have a clue. All they wanted was to take a picture with me so that they could put it on their uh, social media platform. Uh, that they're like big supporters of, you know, sexual abuse in the country. So, yeah, people need to put um, action behind that. You yeah. Know? They really do. They really do. And you've written since this book, you've written a second one. Yeah. Yeah. What's the title and what's it about? This is with a rattlesnake is the name of the book. And because uh, I wrote a song called The Rattlesnake, right? Yep. yep. I've listened to it. And uh, um, and what's interesting was we had no idea, you know, what a rattlesnake really is. And everybody thinks that it's evil, could represent the devil or whatever it is. But, you know, the rattlesnake doesn't look for confrontation. It sheds its skin. It reinvents itself. And we were like, wow, you know, that's, that's basically what we're trying to do. And so I meet this incredible lady, Kim Barthel, at a conference in Winnipeg about resiliency. And, uh, and up until this point, I'd spent the majority of my therapeutic process working on my sexual abuse. Okay. And uh, she was speaking in the afternoon and I was speaking in the evening. And most times when I show up at a conference, I just sit in my hotel room until it's my turn and then I go do my thing and whatever. But for some reason, I felt compelled to go and listen to this lady speak because I saw her name on the poster and like 50 letters behind her name, like, you know, <laughs> right. BA, all this stuff. And I was like, yeah, I should probably go have a listen. So when you win a gold medal for Canada at the Olympics in hockey, everybody knows who you are. Right. So I didn't want to disrupt the conference. So I mm -hmm. put on my best disguise and 
I put my baseball cap on and I put my head up and I snuck into the back of the room and started to listen to this lady speak and was absolutely blown away at the information she was providing to the audience. Then she put two videos on the board, one of a healthy mom and baby interaction and one of an unhealthy mom and baby interaction. I got triggered right then and there. And I forgot about my family of origin trauma. So my parents battling addiction, you know, thinking that didn't affect me. Well, sure as hell it did. And so as soon as she was done speaking, I kind of went up to her and I said, hey, you. I said, you just changed my life. (laughs) Wow. And I said, uh, I think you'll be working with me for the rest of yours. I said to her. <laughs> oh, that's good. And so we had we had dinner after the conference. And, uh, you know, I said to her, I said, I had such an amazing experience writing the first book that everybody's asking me, what do I do now? I said, would you be interested in writing a book with me? She said, I would absolutely love to write a book with you. So I invite her to come to my house for the weekend. And basically we sat around my kitchen table for 72 hours and she's a neuroscientist. Okay. Yeah. And at the end of the 72 hours, I realized there wasn't one thing that I could have changed about my life to make it any different. Mm. And for the first time in my life, I got rid of all the shame. And I got rid of all the guilt because I had a neuroscience explanation to what the hell was wrong with me. Right? Right. So then, you know, we started writing this book together and unpacking all of my trauma history and making sense of it. And what we discovered, and we had the biggest aha moment of what trauma teaches us, okay? And trauma teaches us four things that become the core beliefs of who we think we are. So the first one is abandonment and neglect, teaches us abandonment and neglect. Second thing, I'm not good enough. Third thing, I'm not lovable. And then the fourth thing, we have an opioid crisis in the world. And these people fall into that category. Do I even exist in the world? And so, well, and and what she said to me, she was like, you know, I can rewire your brain. And I was like, what the are you talking about? (laughs) She goes, no, I can, I can, I can show you how to rewire your brain. So, you know, I'm a poker player and I took all my chips and I pushed them in the middle of the table and I said, I'm all in. I said, show me how to do that. And so basically conversations with a rattlesnake is all about how to re- rewire your brain in relationship. 
Wow. I think that it, there's a real need for that book. I haven't read it yet, obviously, but um, mm -hmm. I'm going to, and I'm going to recommend it to a few of my friends. I think this yeah. is fascinating, actually. Yeah. yeah that's amazing. And, and so what I had to rewire was all those core beliefs. The beliefs, yeah. I hated myself. I didn't like myself. I couldn't look at myself in the mirror. I didn't know I needed to forgive. I didn't know that I needed to learn compassion empathy, you know, all of these things. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and so, you know, basically for the last, I don't know, six years, I've been rewiring my brain and I've been rewiring all of my trauma experiences. Amazing. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Well, I, like I said, I think that's a fascinating, fascinating mm -hmm. topic and, and much needed, unfortunately, much needed yeah. at this day and age. And you're a motivational speaker. It takes you everywhere. Um, mm -hmm. Where can people find you? I mean, I'm sure there's people listening who might want to uh, hire you for a gala or maybe mm -hmm. for a large organization, bring you in to speak. Where do people find Theo Fleury these days? On my website, yeah. Life is our website. Okay. Uh, uh, I have one employee. Her name is Dawn Roberts, and you can send her an email, and she will promptly get back to you. And you know, we basically will design a program around what your needs are. Amazing. Yeah. And I haven't had the pleasure of, of hearing you yet, but I have friends who have um, either hired you or, or heard you in the past, and uh, they have nothing but good things to say about the presentation and how it fit their needs. So definitely something to check out if, if you're planning something like this, especially in the area of mental health. Um, yeah. You've done so many wonderful things, and I want to personally thank you. Um, I don't think I ever actually asked you to read your book. Uh, yes. <laughs> so I'm going to take a moment now to let you read that paragraph, yeah. if you don't mind. Nope. So the last paragraph is three years ago. I wondered why I was put on the earth. Today I know why. One day when I was reading the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, I landed on step three again. I made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understand him. It hit me in the head like a fucking sledgehammer. Every time I was driving the bus, the bus always crashed. So I moved over to the passenger seat. Now I have my family back and I'm not broke because I'm helping other people. My life is amazing. And it seems that opportunities are put in front of me on a daily basis. In the end, being of service to another human being is the greatest thing for somebody who is struggling. The biggest thing for survivors is to understand you were just a kid. It wasn't your fault. I say it over and over again. It works like lifting weights. Repetition makes the muscles stronger. Now, if I've inspired you in any way, it is your turn. Go inspire somebody else. And remember, don't quit before the miracle. Wow. I have goosebumps. Thank you. Thank you for reading <laughs> that. It's, I mean, I've read it, but it's different when you hear it in your words. <laughs> mm. um, wow. 
And I think the reason I forgot to ask you to read your paragraph is because I got so enraptured in, in our discussion <laughs> from one topic to another, I completely forgot. Yeah. But thank you, Theo. Thank you for taking the time today. Thank you for what you do. Um, thank you for your service to others. And I hope that people do, if they have already read your first book, will pick up the second book. It's totally, um, I can, I'm speaking of the first book, totally mm -hmm. worth the read. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, and can, I, can, I, can I tell you one more story? Absolutely. Okay. So as we were writing Playing With Fire, Kim asked me, how do you feel about forgiveness? And I was like, nope, 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 nope. not going to happen. Mm -mm. What, who, who do I have to forgive, right? Mm -hmm. So five years ago, her and I set an intention that we wanted to start to go work in the prison system in Canada. Because we were curious, okay? So that has come to fruition. And I've been to, I don't know, 25 different prisons all across Canada working with, you know, the baddest dudes on the planet. And I've learned the two greatest lessons in my life working with these people. Because I always go into every coaching situation or whatever situation, I want to learn more from the people I'm working with that I can teach them, right? So anyways, we show up at Stony Mountain Penitentiary and it's a maximum, medium, and minimum security prison. So we have 400 of the baddest dudes on the planet in our audience. And then all the people that work with them are sitting on the right-hand side of the gym. And we are having this amazing conversation about trauma, mental health, and addiction. Because the prison system in Canada, all it is, is a mental health institution. That's all it is, okay? And these guys have 40, 50, 60, 70 layers of trauma in their childhood history. So anyways, we're having this conversation. I look out in the audience and there's this guy in the back of the room and he can't even sit in his chair. He's so fired up. So I say, hey, you got something to say? Well, this kid stands up. He looks exactly like Eminem, the rapper. Okay. He's got the flat B cat. He's got tattoos from his neck all the way. And he's like, you know, he's doing his, you know, hip hop thing. So he stands up and he says, Theo Fleury says, you're my hero. I was like, whoa. Okay. And he says, as you can see, he says, I'm not the biggest guy in the world. And what was interesting was when Kim asked me the question about forgiveness, I got all, I got triggered. Right. And she said, no, this isn't an action. She says, I just want you think about forgiveness. And I said, okay, I can do that. I can think about forgiveness. So here's this kid who says that I'm his hero. And he said, as you can see, I'm not the smallest guy or not the biggest guy in the world. And he said, I used to be a really great hockey player. 
He said, when I was 14 years old, I got involved with the wrong, I grew up on the north side of Winnipeg, which is a really bad area. And he said, I started selling drugs. And he said, I've been in and out of jail ever since. Then he says, you'll never guess who I was with three weeks ago in Grand Cache, Alberta. I said, I don't know, who are you with? He said, I was with Graham James, my abuser. Okay. And he said, Theo Fleury says, because you're my hero. He said, my sole intent while I was in that prison was I was going to beat the shit out of Graham James for you. But he said, Graham is very heavily guarded because everybody wants to beat the shit out of Graham James. So he said, I waited and I waited and I waited and I waited. And he said, I got my chance. The guards left his room and I went into his room and he wasn't there. So he said, I started searching around and uh, I went to the left side of his bed and he wasn't there. He said, I went to the right side of the bed and there he was, curled up in a ball in the fetal position in the corner of his room. And he said, uh, he said, I didn't do anything. You know what I said to the kid? I said, you're my hero for not doing anything. Wow. And remember, Kim said, think about forgiveness think so thoughts become things things. thoughts become Become action in that moment i said to myself that guy's in the fetal position curled up in the ball in the corner of his room that guy's in pain that guy's suffering Mm -hmm. and i have a great life i have an amazing life and so to me we at some point in our life have to get to forgiveness because forgiveness is total and utter freedom. I am no longer attached to that trauma in my life. Right. And so the two greatest lessons that these guys have taught me is the first one they've taught me compassion. And the second thing they've taught me is forgiveness. What an amazing story. The fact that you even got to hear that story. That you yeah. could have lived your life without knowing that ever happened. Yeah. Yeah. That's so, incredible. So and you ne- so forgiveness you never... is for the person who's forgiving. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was me forgiving myself. Yeah. For Like, stop beating the shit out of yourself. Stop carrying this stuff around. Right? And so when we find our voices... We put this stuff back out into the universe and let the universe deal with it, right? I don't need this anymore. I don't need to carry this around. This isn't a part of me anymore. And what I always tell people, you know what came back, what it came back as, you know what the universe gave it back to me as courage Mm. and strength and hope and inspiration, right? Yeah. So you may think that you're paralyzed because of this experience but there are gifts in pain and suffering that's why we go through it because the universe is telling us that we need to learn a lesson here there's a reason why we are in pain and suffering and if we are open and willing to go through it at the end of it there is an amazing gift that you will 
receive. Amazing. I, I'm I'm sitting here trying to digest what just does that story and and your comments on it, and it's very inspiring. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, what if, I'm trying to put myself in your head when when that um, inmate told you that story. I I don't know. I would be I would be overwhelmed if mm-hmm. I was you. I think I truly truly would be. And there, he became the hero's hero. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He was like, you know, it was a gift. He For was a gift. You. He yeah. was a gift. He was a gift. You know, and uh, you know. And, and I always say to people, you know, helping is healing. Mm. So if you're in emotional pain, if you're in suffering, if you're thinking about committing suicide or whatever it is, you carry a story that needs to be heard. Yes, absolutely. Because by telling that story, you're going to help somebody save, you know, their own lives and you know the day that I asked for help was the day that I saved my own life right yeah and you know because we still sort of live in in uh, a generation that was the suck it up generation right but it's not like that it's not like that anymore you know we're seeing more and more people uh, use vulnerability, you know, and, and vulnerability to me is, is telling your story, you know, I and, think it's it's your, still and it's your story and you get to tell it whatever way you want to tell it. Right. Exactly. And those who judge are the ones who are still keeping their own trauma, They're keeping their own secrets. Yeah. 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 And we're only as, and we're only as sick as our secrets. That sounds like a good song title. (laughs) (laughs) And it is. (laughs) Well, it's a a saying from AA. Yes. Yeah. 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 Amazing. So (laughs) is there anything else you'd like to add? What's next for Theo? Anything coming up? Uh, Well, I've had an amazing summer. Uh, uh, I'm a huge golfer. And golf, golf to me is my way of doing my daily meditation for four hours. I get to be in the sun and the only thing I have to concentrate is hitting the ball in the middle of the face, every single shot. And so, um, had a great summer. Uh, and now it's time to go back to work. I'm in, uh, I'm in Rocky mountain house tomorrow speaking. So and then from there, uh, we'll be busy till the end of May. We are Pretty much uh, full schedule. Booked every single month. We have we still have some openings and stuff, but uh, basically we're on the go from September till the end of May. Amazing. So if people want more information, they should check out your website. Absolutely, um, check out your music. Check out mm-hmm. both your books, um, yes. and that's theoflurry.life is yes. your website. Yeah. yeah. So find yeah. out more. You're you're just a going concern. Life didn't end when you retired. No. Um, you you definitely I think your second chapter is um in some ways more powerful 
at least on a personal level, to a lot of people. And I want to thank you for that. And I want to thank you for your time today and sharing those incredible stories. Um, It certainly has inspired me, and I'm sure those listening as well. So um, this is Heather Down reminding you to stay curious because interested minds make for interesting people. Until next week, remember that sometimes the real story begins after the book ends. this episode of After the Book Ends, please consider subscribing to the podcast or connecting online at After the Book Ends.